0: And namaste to all of you. We are continuing with a reading from the Bhagavad Gita, attempting the explanation of the esoteric truth from a yogic standpoint of the teachings given by Krishna in one of the most fundamental spiritual documents of Indian spirituality, which Mahatma Gandhi nicknamed the Bible of the Hindus, the Bible of India. And... In this Bhagavad Gita, which is essentially a teaching on Karma Yoga and other associated teachings of Yoga, Krishna is talking to his disciple Arjuna and is explaining to him both some elements of pure knowledge, giving him knowledge because knowledge is the one which eliminates ignorance and ignorance is the one which eliminates suffering, as Buddha has said it. Therefore, this knowledge, coming from a divine spirit like Krishna, is full of yogic truths, it is full of teachings. Bhagavad Gita is a text which in India is read both by the masses and at the same time it contains a lot of esoteric truths there. It is for this reason that I have been asked to give a commentary, In this season, I went through the first three chapters and I'm now somewhere in the beginning of the fourth chapter. I intend to go up till the sixth chapter because the first six chapters are the ones which contain the essential teachings from the Gita. So, being in the fourth chapter, Krishna started in a very abrupt way with some elements of great knowledge. That's why this chapter is called the Yoga of Knowledge, the chapter on the Yoga of Knowledge. Knowledge is Jnana, so it would be like Jnana Yoga, but it is not exactly in the way in which Jnana Yoga has been explained in the curriculum of Agama, where Jnana Yoga is more a yoga of the Atma Vichara, of the self-inquiry, who am I, that is the real knowledge, Um, and it's more a yoga of contemplation and meditation. There is the exception as well that, of course, the yoga of knowledge is based actually on an esoteric knowledge, on a metaphysical knowledge. This is considered very important and here in Agama we are also going very strong on this metaphysical knowledge of the esoteric principles. We consider that people are getting a lot of light from the knowledge of these things and they can guide their spiritual practice. So Krishna has started in the first nine strophes, in the first nine verses from this chapter by speaking about his own position as an avatar. And the more he speaks, the more Krishna says, I am just an aspect of God incarnated here on earth. Like I'm not a normal citizen like you and your brothers. I am a visitor from above. I am here with a mission. I come whenever the Dharma, the spirituality, is in decline, and I'm coming to correct the session. I am the one who fixes things, who redresses the spirituality of the world. And the last, in the last strophe, number nine, he says, my birth and my activity are divine, which means they are very hard to understand by the human mind, because the divine motivations are very different from the Selfish, limited motivations. And he says, he who knows this in essence, he who knows this indeed, comes to me. It is exactly like a Christ-like statement from centuries later, where he promises salvation. And in the shloka number, in the strophe number 10, with which we start our tonight's reading and commentaries, he continues exactly this By saying, freed from attachment, fear and anger, absorbed in me, taking refuge in me, purified by the austerity of wisdom, many have come to my being, attained to my being. This is again a a sort of messianic statement in which Krishna gets carried on and he's not talking like a normal human being. And this sentence, either Krishna is severely mentally ill and he is a sort of megalomaniac, insane person, or if there is any chance that he tells the truth that that's the way he speaks, then it's one of those uh, sayings, it's one of those words which gives you goosebumps because here Krishna suddenly, not suddenly, but he progressively throws the veil off, and he reveals a nature which is bigger than nature. He simply shows himself to be not a human being. So, first he defines the conditions, which are very important. He says, what do the people do? Because he says, many have come to my being. Jesus would say, many have come to the kingdom of God. But on the other hand, Jesus would say, since I am God, I, Jesus, am God, then this is my kingdom. And Jesus could say, so thus many have come to my kingdom. Many have come to my being. Because the kingdom of God cannot be different from the being of God, since the divine consciousness must be present in its own kingdom. So thus, by a sort of a Socratic Method of taking the deductions step by step, we see that it's the same way of saying things. Of course, the formalism is different from in India 3,500 years ago or in Palestine 2,000 years ago. They are very different spiritual environments, but still there is there some unity. So again, he says, freed from attachment, fear and anger. These are the first three. Like there are, classically, several poisons of the mind. For example, in Tibetan Buddhism, the poisons of the different elements of the different chakras are vanity, and anger, and lust, and envy, or jealousy, and stupidity, or ignorance. Here, in this system, Krishna boils it down to three words. He says, imagine that he has to make it short, He has to boil it down to something synthetic and he says freed from attachment, fear and anger. These are the three things which Krishna finds as the biggest poisons. Attachment, attachment we always say in the yoga courses, attachment is one of the.' I'm sorry, detachment is one of the most difficult things to attain. And detachment is one of the most worthwhile yogic virtues that a spiritual practitioner can attain. If you are not detached, you are not a yogi. If you are a yogi, you must be detached. And therefore, he says, freed from attachment. Like, that's a sine qua non condition. Freed from fear and anger. There is no fear, there is no anger. Anger, if you want to take it technically, would be a poison of Manipura Chakra. Fear would be a poison of Muladhara, Manipura. There are two types of fear, psychologically. And everybody can wonder, why did Krishna select these three things? Why doesn't Krishna says freed from jealousy, freed from lust, freed from um, others, freed from ignorance, freed from... He just expresses it in this way. It's not necessary that he boils it down to these three. And he says, freed from attachment, fear and anger. This is like a mark. This is like a stamp. Like Krishna says, there are people who have reached to my divine nature. Which means to enlightenment. To the divine nature. To the kingdom of God. To union with God. To to communion with God, to mystical union with God. Many have come to my being, and those people who have come to my being, they definitely have no attachment, no fear, no anger, freed from these. And then saying, absorbed in me, taking refuge in me, purified by the fire of knowledge, of wisdom. Therefore, six conditions, liberated from attachment, liberated from fear, liberated from anger, and then absorbed in me, which means focused constantly towards God. Like, if you are not focused on the divine consciousness, then why do you expect the divine consciousness to enter in your house? No, if you don't make God your guest of honor why should the Divine Consciousness come and visit you? It's exactly like Ruskin who said, if you don't give God the first place, you don't give God any place. Because God can have only the first place in the life of a human being. And thus, he says, absorbed in me, like see nothing else, do nothing else but the Divine Consciousness, taking refuge in me, Taking refuge, this is a typical word used in Buddhism, and today it is um, used, it has been used in many religions under various ways, such as confessing, confess Christ, which means I say that Jesus Christ is my Savior. Accept Jesus Christ as your Savior. That's, that means in this language, taking refuge in, in Jesus Christ. Like you say, when I die, May I receive my reward from Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is my caretaker. Is so, taking refuge in the Islamic religion, you are taking refuge in the Prophet. You acknowledge the Prophet Muhammad as the Prophet of God. You say there is only one God and that God is Allah and Prophet and Muhammad is the Prophet of Allah. This is the Shehzada of faith which you have to repeat three times. And that is like taking refuge in Muhammad and in the faith which he generated in the system which he revealed to humanity. So he says, freed from attachment, fear and anger, absorbed in me, taking refuge in me, purified by the fire of knowledge. So he adds to those three lacking fear and anger and attachment, He says, purified by the fire of knowledge. Knowledge, pure knowledge, right knowledge is compared to a fire because indeed it burns a lot of things. Knowledge is something which sometimes resembles to insanity because people who know, sometimes they can appear crazy in the eyes of the world. For example, Jesus passes by a funeral and sees a young man that seems to be spiritually gifted, and he says, come follow me. And the young man says, first I have to bury my father. Like, no, it's an elementary social obligation, especially in a patriarchal society like that of Palestine, of Israeli culture of those days. And Jesus doesn't even allow him to bury his father. He says, let the dead bury their dead, You come and follow me. Like, your father is dead. If you would see the things the way I see them, you will see that whatever happens there with the funeral, it's a hypocrisy already. It doesn't serve anybody and it won't change anything. Your father is dead. There is some service done, some prayers done. That's all there is to it. It doesn't, for you, it's much more important that you follow me And that you reach immortal life that I'm teaching you. And probably that young man became one of the apostles. If that young man would have stayed and buried his dead. You can say yeah but couldn't Jesus have said I'm going I'm walking north. You find me north you know just stay and bury your dead for a few hours. And then run take a horse whatever and and catch me you will catch me you know. You will walk a little bit more a bit faster. And you'll catch me. No. That, that parable is essential. It's very important because it shows the fire of knowledge. Can you imagine what the family of that young man thought about that young man? Like what a sudden jerk he became for everybody in the family. That he was in the middle of the funeral of his father. And then he just went away after a hippie called Jesus. You know, like he couldn't even stay like everybody would say. But you could have stayed another five hours and finished the job. And then you could pick up a horse and run after that hippie. You know, it's like, what's the big deal? You know? And he left. He became a jerk to the family. Imagine what a jerk Jesus became to the family. That they came that blasphemer, that weird guy who goes around and teaches weird things. And he somehow hypnotized our child, hypnotized our brother. He suddenly, in the middle of the funeral, dropped everything and went after that guy. It sounds like sheer madness. That's the fire of knowledge. The fire of knowledge means that when you know some things, what people do becomes simple hypocrisy. What people do becomes a waste of time. And you cannot put up with their shit anymore because you have a knowledge and this knowledge acts like a fire, which means if you are ignorant and there is too much knowledge in too short time, it burns you. It's like a burning, you know, like there were people who in a second they had to let go of everything. There were people who were suddenly enlightened, like Paul, another apostle of Christ much later, who was a persecutor. And, a, no, and then he sees Jesus in a flash of light And then that acts like a fire. Like all his previous beliefs. Everything falls down into pieces. Paul is suddenly consumed by a fire. And later he becomes the bitter enemy of the society from where he came. He was a Roman citizen. He is decapitated at the order of the Roman emperor. At the order of Nero or Caligula or whoever was emperor in those days. Because... He, because of this knowledge, like this knowledge makes him transform so radically. And a lot of knowledge in the short time, they work like a fire. That is why great masters generally give knowledge with a spoon. They spoon feed the disciples little by little because too much knowledge in too short time can have the effect of a fire. And the spirit of God, which is pure knowledge and enlightenment, can become pain, can become painful because suddenly you let go of everything. And letting go of everything is like a pain because your samskaras, your mind, everything, they are not prepared for you to let go. And you suddenly got this knowledge. And it feels like you've been drinking liquid fire or something because it goes through your veins and it burns everything in short time. That's why knowledge has its laws. You learned in the very first level of teachings of Agama that there is this thing about forbidden knowledge, the wall of the silence. The the knowledge cannot surpass a certain shocking threshold level because then it produces violent effects. It produces Incredibly rough effects. So it is very appropriate here that he calls it the fire of knowledge. So Krishna simply says you are not even the first one. I being God and having taught this yoga thousands of years before, before you are born to other generations, Krishna simply says others have attained to my being. Like he describes himself suddenly like he's a being that fills up the universe. He says, people like Manu and those old um, rishis, freed from attachment and all those things, fulfilling all those conditions, they have reached to my being. They have reached me. It's very megalomaniac. It's very, you know, because he says, all those prophets from your, they have reached me. They were seeking for me, actually. What an expression, like the man in front of you, either is mad or is God. There is no middle way into this. And he continues, he says, As men, and now we are moving to the strophe number 11. As men approach me, so do I favor them. In all ways, O Arjuna, men follow my path. This is exactly like the statement of Paul, the Apostle of Christ. He says, either people know it or not, accept, like it or not, accept it or not, They still, we still all belong to God. Even the atheists belong to God because they did not create themselves and they don't know who created this universe and they don't have absolutely any control. But because their mind is ...obliterated because they can't see some things and they are ignorant... ...they have developed a belief which is aberrant... ...and they stick to that belief, but that does not change the reality. If somebody says, I don't have a liver because I have never seen my liver... ...it doesn't make you have less of a liver because you don't believe you have a liver. Thus, either you believe there is a divine consciousness or not in this universe... ...it makes no difference. And that is why Krishna says... My path do men tread in all ways. Whatever they do, being atheistic, doing prayer, practicing science, doing charity, doing karma yoga, practicing yoga, doing this, doing whatever people do, they practice my path. Which simply here, Krishna sets himself forth again as God, as a cosmic consciousness. He says, everybody and is within me. I am God, and everybody somewhere, somehow is on their path. It is exactly like the Buddhist teaching, which says that the beings from all the six Lokas of the universe, they are on the path to nirvana. Even the demons, even the hungry ghosts, even the diabolic dark entities from hells, they still will become Buddhas one day. Only it may take a very, very long time before that will happen, but still it can't stop spirit from evolving, from being in a process of evolution. Exactly in a similar way, but in a theistic way, because Buddhism speaks in a non-theistic way, like not with a personal God, but with a search for the nirvana, the Buddha nature. Here, Krishna speaking in a theistic society, in a theistic, like he is the incarnation of God, says, Oh, Arjuna, in all ways, man follow my path. If you decide to drop out of yoga and to go home and have five children and become a bourgeois citizen, you walk in the path of Krishna. Still, you can't get out of the path of God. Shiva is everywhere. The Shiva consciousness is the whole universe, either in hell or on earth, either in paradise or out of your body between two lives in the bardo, either practicing yoga or not practicing consciously any spirituality, you still are on the path of God. You still are somewhere on the wheel of samsara. You are still somewhere on the wheel of dharma. You are still somewhere in the process of growing up and evolving spiritually. And that is why here he is very radical. It's a very beautiful statement because he says in all the ways man tread my path. That's everybody. Ignorant people think they can get out of the game. Nobody gets out of the game. Even if you commit suicide you still follow the path of God. Of course you have taken a very painful detour which is going to give you some pain but you still are ultimately learning from your mistakes and from your wrong choices and eventually you are still following the path of evolution. This is a very global teaching which is more on the side of the monism, not on the side of dualism. In the Christian theological teachings which are more rooted in dualism, it's like you live a life and then if you do good things, you go in the kingdom of heaven and you are saved forever. And if you fail, you, you go to hell, to purgatory to hell for all eternity and there you are going to gnash your teeth forever. But it's like when you are gone to hell, you are out of the picture. You are out of salvation. In a monistic tradition, even those who fail, they fail for a while. Even if that while can be very, very long. But still they fail for a while. There is no failing forever. The only thing which is forever is only God. Thus, every human activity or consequence of an activity is limited. It cannot be infinite. This is one of the most serious fallacies of dualistic teachings that they talk about some sort of eternal damnation. There is no eternal damnation. The only eternal thing is the cosmic consciousness because it's the only thing which rises above time and space. So... He says it's a beautiful thing to meditate upon that in all the ways man, human beings, follow the path of God. Even when they think they don't they still do. It's not possible to get out of that because human beings are not free. They are not free. They don't have the power to break the chain and set themselves free. Because they are not self-created. They are created by a power which they don't even see or understand. And the second, the first statement is very beautiful and it says it's worth being meditated upon. That's why I left it second. He says, as men approach me, so do I favor them. Let's say you approach God impudently, shamelessly. God treats you, favors you, shamelessly, impudently. You come to God, you address God aggressively. Not with humility, not with surrender. You say, God, if you are there, give me something. Bang! You get it, but in a very aggressive way. God answers exactly in the same currency in which you address him. This is the statement from the Bible which says with whatever measure you measure unto others with the same measure God is going to measure unto you. Even in the Lord's Prayer Jesus says "Lord, and forgive us our trespasses, our mistakes as we forgive to our trespassers. Like if I don't forgive to my trespassers then don't forgive me. You tell to God, forgive as I do forgive. Which also means, if I don't, then you don't. It's a very big trap in that prayer. Because it doesn't say, forgive our mistakes. It says, forgive our trespasses as we forgive our trespassers. Therefore, the conclusion is clear. We forgive, we shall receive forgiveness. We don't forgive. We don't receive any forgiveness. It's as simple as that. With the measure with which you measure. And God, Krishna here, says, In whatever way men approach me, even so do I reward them. They love me, I love them back. They want knowledge, I give them knowledge. Rumi, in one of his beautiful poems, he says, you are here hiding in this garden. The garden means the universe, the manifestation in the metaphors of Rumi. And he speaks to God and he says, you are here hiding in this garden where many have died seeking for you. But, but he says, this pain to die seeking for God and thinking, I did not find him. Try to think how many monks and nuns have been in monasteries, ashrams, viharas, and places, and not all of them have reached enlightenment. Therefore, many of them died just with a hope that maybe they will receive mercy in the 12th hour, or that they will be able to continue in some next life if they believed in next lives. Not everybody who sat down to look for God found God, unfortunately. And Rumi says... You are hiding here in this garden where many have died seeking for you. Which is not very pleasant. And he says, but this pain is not for those who come as lovers. You are easy to find here. Like if you love God, God is going to love you back. God behaves in a certain way like a mirror. Whatever you put into it, God is going to give it back. Much more. It is said if you make one step towards God. God will make ten steps towards you. But you need to make that one step. You cannot make too many steps. Because you are just a human being. And you have so so much stress. So much difficulties. Making choices of a spiritual nature is so difficult. But. Jesus, for example, sees a poor old woman, a widow, who gives a donation of five penny. And he says, the little coin which that woman gave as donation is more valid to me than all the money which the rich people donated, tons and tons of it. Because that woman had almost nothing to eat, and out of her poverty, she donated a penny. That means she gave... Everything. When she gave everything, God will come in a fraction of a second and give you everything. Because you are ready to give everything. In whatever way men approach me, even so do I reward them. With whatever measure you measure, so shall God measure to you. And I in another place, Jesus says it in another way. He say, He who lives by the sword... ...shall perish by the sword. Any one of you wants to die by the sword, live by the sword. But do not be surprised when one day you shall die by the sword. Because you are asking for it. If you want to be stern and perfectionistic... ...when you'll have your judgment day... ...your guardian angel is going to be stern and perfectionistic... And the slightest flaw which you have will be highlighted and criticized bitterly. If you don't want to have such a terrible day, then do something very simple. Stop being stern and perfectionistic. Be tolerant. Be forgiving. Be loving. When you give forgiveness, you shall get forgiveness. Forgive everybody. And even though you have been a fool and did a lot of stupid things in your life, In the end, all of it is going to be wiped with a sponge. Why? Because you yourself have been a forgiving person. An old man from the fathers of the desert culture was one of the laziest monks in the monastery. Like he never did lots of meditation, prayer, fasting. He was a lazy monk and everybody knew. And then one day he was about to die. And he was very cheerful like when people are about to die, especially spiritual people, they would become very apprehensive, you know, because now comes the great transition. Now comes the great moment where you see if you've done it white or if you've done it black, you know. Now it's the big the big moment. And this old man was cheerful. And one of the other monks in the monastery, he said, excuse me for asking, but we all know that you've not been top of the class when it comes to your spiritual practices. And yet you are here about to die and you are cheerful. Please, if there is something which you are missing here, teach us. Enlighten us because otherwise it looks like you are senile and unconscious. You, know? you are not realizing on what an edge you are. He basically tried to make him aware, you know, like a friendly thing, like, hey, you are approaching a very, at least in the last moment, please, 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 you know, be... And the old man says, ever since I entered this monastery, this place, he said, I had one discipline. I never condemned or judged anybody. And he says, according to the word of God... I am confident that God will also not condemn or judge me. Never in my life did I condemn or judge anybody. Thus, I'm expecting to be paid with the same coin, with the same currency. This is exactly what Krishna says in another way. As men approach me, so do I favor them. Remember, you decide what relationship you want to have with God. If you challenge God, God will challenge you. If you ask God to be perfect, God will ask you to be perfect. If you are very high maintenance, God is going to be very high maintenance to you. If you are humble and loving, God will give you total forgiveness and love. Ultimately, this is like a reflection of our own subconscious mind. This is a yogic exemplification of the law of resonance because it doesn't matter what the cosmic consciousness is like because the cosmic consciousness is everything, can be everything anytime, but it matters what you put in it. It's your resonance. If you are attuned to perfectionism, then you are going to reflect from this ocean of cosmic consciousness, perfectionism. And you are going to get an angel coming to visit you, which will be a perfectionistic angel. And that angel will seek your life with a microscope, looking for flaws, for the slightest flaw. Very few people can resist such a search. Yes, there are people who are very perfectionistic. They don't make any mistake they fast, they do vigils, they do meditation, they are doing perfect austerities, maddening levels of austerity, and those people, after they have done, like Milarepa, 30, 40 years of daily meditation, they can present themselves in front of any cosmic consciousness, and they have done their full. But very few people have such a willpower Such a perfectionism, stick to the standards. That's why especially in Kali Yuga, one like Jesus brought the path of forgiveness. It's much better if you actually are humble and you ask for forgiveness because it will be very difficult to be perfect because we don't have many Milarepas living today. Everybody will do a little botching here and there and therefore it's much better if you can obtain this forgiveness. Remember and meditate often on this statement of Krishna because it defines your relationship to your own self, to your own higher self, your relationship to Shiva, your relationship to God, your relationship to the infinite. As men approach me, so do I favor them. In Romania we have a proverb which says every bird dies singing in its own style. Like a nightingale as it dies sings nightingale-ish not crows like a crow. Every bird has its own dialect which means every human being gets exactly according to their nature. Every thing Happens according to what you unconsciously ask from the universe. You practice extreme sports. What are you asking for? You're asking for injury. Do not be surprised if you have fire up your ass and practice extreme sports that one day you are going to break your leg or your neck. You're asking for it. Every bird dies in its own dialect. Your dialect is a dialect of breaknecks, of diehards. Then so shall you break your neck and go to the limit of that. That Thus, remember that we deal with the universe through the law of resonance. It is always a reflection. To a humble person, the universe is humble. To an aggressive person, the universe is aggressive. To a vanitous, arrogant person... The universe is arrogant. Everything is according to God, simply reflects it back to us. That's why you want a peaceful spiritual path? Be peaceful. Ask God for peace. You want, you think that God is fiery and turbulent? Then you are going to have a spiritual life which is going to be fiery and turbulent. I can understand that some people have that need. It's okay. There have been people who died by martyrdom, who had an extremely flashy spiritual life, like they definitely didn't have any modesty or any measure. There were people who were having a meteoric career in spirituality. Those of you who know that you have such needs, go ahead. Those of you who know that you don't have such needs, Don't play with the fire if you don't need it. Approach the divine consciousness. Approach Krishna. Approach Vishnu. Approach Shiva. Whatever name you want to give to this cosmic consciousness. Approach this consciousness in the way in which you want to be treated. Do not expect that you are going to approach God roughly. And he is going to treat you softly. That is never happening. Approach roughly, you shall be treated roughly. If you don't want any roughness, then make sure that you approach the divine in a soft way. It is very important to meditate on this. It's a great statement of wisdom, which tells us something about our lives, our lifestyle, our spiritual practice. Ultimately, you decide what language God will speak to you. What language the universe will speak to you. In the way in which you approach. Approach spirituality reverently, politely, humbly, softly, with love, with measure. And that's exactly what you're going to get from the universe. But I would agree that if you have an excess of pitta dosha, this bores you to death. You want a spirituality which is... Yahoo type of cowboy type of spirituality. Knock yourself off. Sure. Some people want it that way. Let them have it that way. But always be warned. At least you know why you do what you do and why you get what you get. Remember that there are people who in their spirituality they have never been persecuted. There are people who in their spirituality have most of the time been persecuted. You ask for What you get. It's as simple as that. And he gives further teaching. Now Krishna starts coming to it. This is the chapter on the yoga of knowledge. And he starts resuming some of the truths. He gave such teachings a little bit in chapter 2. He gave such teachings a little bit in chapter 3. He needs to come back on some of those ideas which apparently are very dear to him. In the shloka number 12 in chapter 4, he says, Those who desire fulfillment of actions here on earth make offerings to the gods. For success born of action comes quickly in the world of man. He defines the law of success in the physical world. He says, Those who desire fulfillment of actions here on earth. Or as Swami Shivananda reads it, those who long for success in action in this world. Such as, you want to create a family. You want success, right? You wouldn't want your children to be ridden with poliomyelitis and to have a family which falls apart and which is a disaggregated family. Everybody says, if I want to launch myself into making a family, then I want to have a great family. Or, you start a business. If you start a business, you don't want to start a bad business. Either you start it, and then you want it to be good, or you don't start it, because then at least you know you don't waste your time and energy and stress and other things with it. And that's why those who long for success in action in this world... Who doesn't long for success in action in this world? Only the Vedantic saints, only the ascetic saints, who simply all the time say, I don't want anything of this world. I am bored stiff of this world. This world is Maya. This world is samsara. I am sick and tired with it. I want to get out of this world. I never want to come back to this world. I have no attachment, I give out, I give up everything. I don't want family, I don't want richness, I don't want fame, I don't want nothing, nothing, nothing. It's like the people who are having an almost spiritually suicidal type of attitude. Like, all I want is to be out of here. All this thing is a catastrophe for me. We do not share that vision in Tantra because in the Tantric mentality we think that the world being Shakti, it is not worth despising the world or running away from the world. And the world can be modified, we can interact with the world in, a, in an active way, in a yogic way. But when Krishna speaks this... Although Krishna is often on the side of Tantra or speaks dual, speaks for both sides. Nevertheless, the Indian culture at this time was not very Tantric. Like, who were the great sages, the great spiritual beings at the time when this was written, at the time when this is supposed to happen? Most of them were rishis living in the forest, great sages... Living a rural, simple life, totally detached, totally none of them was a king was, or something like this. And that is why he says, those who desire fulfillment of actions here on earth. That means only 99% of the population, because there will always be 1% of the population who doesn't want any fulfillment of actions here on earth, who actually says, If possible, I would go to the kingdom of God tonight, not tomorrow. Tonight, I simply don't want to fulfill anything here on earth. I want out of here. Again, this is not the tantric attitude to life and to spirituality, but it is a spiritual attitude. It's a bit radical, I admit. It's a bit almost hysterical. It's a bit extreme, but it is a spiritual attitude, and actually, in the world spirituality, more than 95% of the spiritual people had this attitude that they don't want anything. What does a monk or a nun in a Christian monastery want to fulfill as action here on earth? Nothing. They just want to die and be put in a sack and their soul go in the kingdom of heaven. They want to be unknown, modest humble, just praying to God, like there is nothing I want to do. Ah, the fact that sometimes religious people, either in Christianity or in Buddhism or in other religions, they do a lot of charity and social actions, that's actually a surrogate. It's a surrogate of their spirituality. Because the first priority is that you should reach to the kingdom of heaven. If you did charity... ...took care of the children of the street like Mother Teresa... ...but you didn't reach the kingdom of heaven... ...what's worth it? Maybe you in the moment of death... ...maybe, maybe, that's a very big lottery... ...maybe there will come an angel and say... ...okay, you didn't really reach to Samadhi... ...but because you've been such a charitable person... ...and because you inspired so many people... ...and because you created faith in the souls of many people... Okay, here is a bonus. It's a sort of a free... Maybe. You cannot guarantee this thing. Don't bet on it. You never can bet on it. Especially when it comes on grace. On on free mercy like this. That's why the correct thing in spirituality was, of course, to put the spiritual things first. Therefore... Those who desire fulfillment of actions here on earth, those would for Krishna, here, those can be only two kinds of people. Definitely, those would not be the hermits living in the forest. The hermits, the holy men, the sadhus of India living in the forest, they definitely do not desire fulfillment of actions here on earth. They don't want to have big houses, big families, big career, big projects, big things. No. So you have the hermits, the ascetics, who don't want to fulfill. Then there is the rest of the world. And those are the ones who desire fulfillment of action here on earth. And those will be like the attached one the non-spiritual one, the ones who are not spiritual enough and who are not longing so much for God and for nirvana that they are ready to give up everything. And because of this, they still have attachments and they would want some to fulfill one or another thing here on earth. And I would add to this because Krishna does not say it's not so. That's why it's beautiful that Krishna always leaves space for the other interpretation and some of his interpretations like in karma yoga are purely on the tantric side they can also be some of those who desire fulfillment of actions here on earth although they are spiritual already like for example Swami Shivananda had a lot of projects he built an ashram he built a university he built a printing press he built a hospital, then he built another hospital, then he built a colony for lepers, then he built a kitchen for the Babas, then he built... Do you think that Swami Shivananda didn't want fulfillment of actions here on earth? Like Swami Shivananda starts putting his time and energy in building a eye hospital, a hospital for the eyes, for the eyesight, and he doesn't wish fulfillment of this action here on earth? Like he starts it, but he says, oh, heck if I know if this will ever be fulfilled. Of course he wants it. And yet Swami Shivananda is considered a very enlightened master. So why does he have any desire? Because he does karma yoga. He is beyond the desire, but then he, achie- he agrees to take on deliberately some desires, although he could be without desires. Remember that in the model which I often gave to you to understand the Tantric spirituality, the Tantric spirituality is like coming over the top of a hill. The top of the hill and the way up is asceticism and going to Nirvikalpa Samadhi. And then once you pass it, you get back to the world still having your Nirvikalpa Samadhi. So therefore there comes a moment where you act in the world like Buddha. Why did Buddha bother to create all the rules for the Sangha? It's difficult to create all the rules for the Sangha. Buddha, after he reached his own enlightenment, he worked another 40 years to organize the Buddhist Sangha. And he organized it pretty well. It survives until today. Therefore, it's precisely because Buddha had 40 years. Jesus educated his disciples only three years. Buddha educated his disciples 45 years. Makes a difference. Makes a huge difference. Buddha had the time to think it over and think it over and cut and correct and adjust and think it over again until he made it really good. That's why the Buddhist system is polished by its own creator, the Christian system is not polished by its own creator. It's given quickly, quickly to the apostles and then the apostles started polishing it. And actually most of the rules in Christianity come from the letters of Paul, who didn't even meet Jesus physically. Paul had a vision of Christ five years after Christ was dead. Paul never saw Jesus physically and yet he became one of the most theologically significant apostles of Christianity. Thus, what I'm saying here is, coming back to our story, there are three phases in spirituality. There is the phase when you are not spiritually interested, and then you just want mundane things. You don't have spiritual interests, you have mundane interests. Then there is the stage number two in which your aspiration flares very high and everything in you turns upside down and you say, the heck with the family, the heck with the money, the heck with everything. I want to go to God. And this is the time where people run into monasteries, run into caves, run into deserts and they give up everything. This is the time of renunciation when people renounce everything. And then... Such people don't want any action on earth. For them this world is like an enemy. It's like a trap. It's something which tries to ensnare them and keep them prisoner. Because everything is like opposing to their aspiration and to their spiritual practice. And then the third stage which is not commented in all the spiritualities. Because this is high, advanced. Is when you finally have reached the top of the mountain. And you still have another 40 years to live on the face of the earth. Then, either you walk in the Ganges and take your own life, because there is no more purpose of this life, or if you live another 40 years in your enlightenment like Buddha, then you start organizing a world religion. Something, whatever God gives you to do. And thus... Here when you say those who desire fulfillment of actions here on earth. Who are those? Those who are not spiritual or those who are ultra spiritual. Like for example Krishna himself. He has a plan. He's sitting here brainwashing Arjuna. Arjuna doesn't want to fight and Krishna speaks worth 18 chapters. He keeps on going on and going on and going on. Krishna wants Arjuna to take up his weapons and struggle. Krishna has a plan. Krishna wants the fulfillment of his action. He says, I came here to change the world. And you, Arjuna, are the instrument of this change in the world. So get the bloody up and take your weapons and do this holy word. You know, it's like, what are you doing? Are you dying on me now? Are you quitting on me now? What are you doing? Like Krishna wants the fulfillment of an action. But it's not because Krishna is not spiritual. It's because Krishna is very spiritual. Krishna does not have the fear that, Oh my God, maybe I don't make it to nirvana. Oh my God, I need to quit everything in the world and meditate. He's not desperate. He has already passed that stage of his spirituality. And that's why... So this teaching applies both to Tantric Yoga advanced levels and it applies to those... ...who don't have spirituality. It seems from the tone of Krishna... ...it seems, he doesn't say it clearly... ...that he speaks about the normal people of the world... ...who have no spirituality. And he says, those who desire fulfillment of actions here on earth... ...like you have a mundane project... ...make offerings to the gods. We spoke before, those of you who were here at that time... ...when I commented chapter 3 where Krishna has an incredible 10 or 12 shlokas, where he speaks about sacrifice, about Yagya, how do you sacrifice to the gods? And there he claims, like to make the long story short for those of you who didn't get that, there he demonstrates that the whole universe is a magic, that there is a circle of energy, like the water which needs to vaporize to become clouds, and then the clouds generate rain, and the rain goes in the underground, and from the underground we get springs and rivers, and thus we get again oceans, which then vaporize. Like, if anybody would stop this, like if you stop the water on vaporizing, if somebody would miraculously come tomorrow and put a plastic folio over all the oceans of the world, cover the planet, Earth with plastic, then suddenly the whole caboodle would stop. There would be no more clouds, There would be no more rain and the whole process would simply stop. In the same way, if you don't give to the gods, the gods can't give back to you. And the circle of prosperity and of life in this universe, it stops. For example, the devout Hindus, they give water to Surya. You've seen Hindu people going in the Ganges or some other other water sources. When they live in Orissa, they go to the ocean and they go in the water up till their waist, and they start saying mantras for the sun god, which you are perhaps feeling when you do Surya Namaskara, the sun salutations, and they give water with mantras, so that it's like a consecrated thing. They they take water in the hollow of their hands, they lift it up, and they say, Om Surya Namaha, and they give it like this water, the prana from it, is donated to the sun god, to Surya Deva. Because the popular understanding of it is that Surya Deva is an entity made of fire and somebody who is on fire suffers from thirst. Like when you have a high fever in your body, you need to drink liquids, you are thirsty, your mouth is dry. The sun has its mouth dry and the best gift you can make to the sun god, give him some water. Everybody rationally can smile like it's a very candid idea. First of all, that the sun god is so powerful that it doesn't really need your offering. And the second thing, what importance can have a few hollows of water from some tiny little creatures on a planet of the solar system compared to a thing of the size of the sun? It's not that. If you think like this, you miss the point. The point is that you can receive only when you give. And it's a culture of giving and receiving. It's a culture of closing the circle. It doesn't mean, it doesn't matter if your sacrifice is big or not, if it's significant or not. It matters in which spirit it is made. And that's why the whole universe works through this chain of sacrifice. Modern atheistic people, they stop sacrificing. Actually, as Krishna demonstrates later in Bhagavad Gita, even atheistic and inferior people, they still do sacrifice. But they sacrifice to the demons. They sacrifice to the souls of the dead. They sacrifice to all sorts of inferior and dark spirits, which makes that their culture goes demonic, dark, tamasic. And because of this, quite negative, because instead of, at least if you sacrifice, sacrifice to the big things. For example, Gurdjieff, says that using automobiles, we have to make sacrifice to the demons of the automobile. That the automobile, the car, the apparition of the car in the human history, some 110, 120 years ago, simply represents like a pact with a class of demonic spirits, which are the demons of the cars. Today we can speak about the demons of the computers, the demons of other technical gadgets, mobile telephones and others that we use. And when we use them, they have to be paid. But you are going to say, well, the arrogant, scientific, rational people of today, they would give the finger, they don't want to pay anything. There are are no demons of the cars. This is just some shamanic, crazy concept, and we don't believe in it. The fact that you don't believe that the cars are inhabited by some entities doesn't make it untrue. Goethe, Johann Wolfgang Goethe, the German philosopher, said, it is not the world of the spirits of the nature which is dead. It is because people say there are no more fairies. Where are the fairies or are the spirits of the nature? And Goethe says, it's not the world of the spirits of nature which is dead. It's your hearts that are dead. I mean, the fact that you don't believe in the fairies doesn't make the fairies disappear just because it makes them disappear for you. You are subjectively blind to that and that universe, that opening does not exist for you. The fact that you do not admit that mechanical devices like cars, automobiles are actually governed by some demonic type of spirits, some elemental spirits, does not eliminate those spirits or make them go out of existence. Only that whatever is happening, you don't see it coming. You don't see it coming. And Gurjiev says, people who die in car accidents, they are the quota of human sacrifices given by humanity to those demons for using them. It's a bargain. It's a barter. We use you, you give yourselves to us and we exploit you, and 1% of our citizens will die in car accidents and will be yours after death. They go to your sphere of existence, to your loka, as the Indians will call it, to your universe. That's the metaphysical shamanic truth of it, and that's why... This I explained already when I explained chapter 3. And that's why it's everything about sacrifice. And Krishna brings it back. In case you are not there, I hope you got enough from the short explanation. Ask me in late night meetings, in Q&As, if you want more clarification. Because in these discourses, I'm not taking questions. I'm just giving explanations. And he says again, those who desire fulfillment of actions here on earth... Make offerings to the gods. Like you want success? Don't be silly. Do not be silly. Any one of you does an action here on earth. Either because you are not very spiritual and you have more interest in some mundane actions than in pure spirituality. Or because you are spiritual but you are a tantric type of spiritualist and you want to bring together the two worlds, you don't want to do this kind of suicidal spirituality running from the world, but you want to do a spirituality in which the world is included harmoniously, integrated harmoniously, which is a tantric spirituality, as Ken Wilber calls it, an ecological type of spirituality, like it's not destructive or suicidal, it is taking into account the environment around. You want to do an action Make offerings to the gods. It's known since the beginning of time. If you don't make offerings to the gods, how are you going to be supported in your activity? Here on earth, there are rules of the game. You cannot live without breathing oxygen. You cannot live without eating food generally. A few people who violate the laws of nature did, but it's not frequent, it's not the norm. And thus Krishna says it as a fact those who desire fulfillment of actions here on earth, either non-spiritual people or very spiritual people, integral spirituality type of people, make offerings to the gods. For success born of action comes quickly in the world of man. It's a very tricky action because quickly success is quickly attained by men through action. What action? He uses the word he says for success born of action. Comes quickly in the world of the man, but he just said it before. Try to realize the logics of these two sentences put together. He says, "Those who desire fulfillment of actions here on earth make offerings to the gods." That's the action, because success born of action comes quickly in the world of man. Logically, why do he says those who desire fulfillment make offerings to the gods? Because success born of action comes quickly in the world of man. That's the action itself. The sacrifice to the gods, the offerings to the gods, that is the action. So, part of karma yoga in itself is consecration. Consecration is an offering to the gods. It's true that the spiritual consecration is not offering to the gods. It's offering to God. One, the very top Not to the deities. But in the Indian tradition in those days, there was a mixture between the one God and God's being a polytheistic culture. And therefore, first you have God, then you have God's deities, then you have Titans, the Asuras, then you have the dark spirits, and then you have humanity as physically manifested thing. So... Once more, this very important and magic shloka, which says, those who long for success in action in this world, sacrifice to the gods. If you don't sacrifice to the gods, you don't get success in this world. Remember this. Meditate deeply on this. Either you are spiritual or not, because that's the law of success and the ignorance of Kali Yuga makes that many people have forgotten there is no free lunch. There is always something which needs to be paid somewhere, somehow. In the old days, people in religion were advised to do what is called in English tithing. Tithing was if you are not a monk or a nun and you are a householder, you have to give 10% of your bruto income, 10% of your raw income, you give it to God. Then you sacrifice to the gods. And then you are going to have success in life. Many people think if I would give 10% of my income to a gama. Or to a church. Or to a monastery. Or to something. I don't think I would make it. 10% is like extra taxation. Suddenly the, 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 the tax has increased with 10%. Raw from the raw, not from the benefit, from the raw, all the brutal thing, you just have to give 10% to God. Or if you are not in a monotheistic culture, to the gods. But you have to give it. And yet paradoxically Krishna says, try it. Your income will become much bigger. Your business and the outcome of things will be much bigger. You just don't dare to trust it because you don't have faith and you don't dare to start this mechanism. So make a unilateral act of faith. Leap without a safety net. Leap into the and give 10%. And then the gods will act with their causal power and will make that you will prosper. And you will get way more than the 10% which you invested in this. This is why we encourage in the school everybody who wants. Come back to the good old habit of tithing. Tithing, which means giving one-tenth of your wealth to God, is one of the smartest things which existed in spirituality because you give and it's like an investment. You get back tenfold, hundredfold for it because it's an act of faith and the gods or whatever, whoever receives it, appreciates it and says, there is somebody who understand the laws, reward that person handsomely, because even in Kali Yuga, they are making an act of faith. They are having the courage to live by some principles. You are not blind anymore. Everybody is blind, and because being blind, they don't tithe. Tithing is very healthy. And thus, in the old days, even peasants were advised Do not gather all the crops, leave a little bit of your crops, even one-tenth of them on the field, and burn them. Give them to God. And today, scientists say that's because it was a sort of a natural fertilizer that you burn some cereals or whatever it was, and the ashes were very loaded with minerals, and then the rain took it in. It may be. It may be an explanation of this, but if instead of if you gather all the crop greedily, like I am a wheat producer, and every summer I come with the harvesters and take the wheat, and I want to take all the wheat. Somebody smart said, leave some wheat there. Don't be scrupulously to the millimeter. Leave 10% of it on the field. And then the next crop will be rich. If you take all of it, the earth will be demineralized, and then the next crop will be weaker, and the next crop will be even weaker, and then you want to use chemical fertilizers, and thus you get into a spiral of something really bad. This is the principle here. So, those who long for success in action in this world sacrifice to the gods, because success is quickly obtained by men through this action, through this action of sacrificing, through intelligent action. If you don't sacrifice... There is no action. Meditate. All those of you who have things to do in this world, meditate very carefully on this statement, on this shloka of Krishna. And if you heard me lecturing on the shlokas from chapter 3, then put that together. And actually Krishna is going to give a little bit more here. And it's very, very important to understand how to live a traditional life, a life Ecological, integrated with spiritual things, not not a life in separation. A life in separation is typical for the modern alienated human beings. So it's like Krishna lists some principles because he said... In whichever way men approach to me, I reward to them and all men work on my path. People who are in the world and who desire fulfillment, they sacrifice to the gods because this action quickly brings benefits in the world of men. It's like he lists some principles. He basically resumes, reminds some truths because he wants to say something deeper. So he is like... Making up his case right now. He's telling a few things to Arjuna. Like a reminder. That's why the things seem to be not necessarily connected. But they are building up to something. And in the shloka number 13. He continues. He says the fourfold order. The fourfold caste system. Which is so booed today. Was created by me according to the division of Gunas and Karma. Though I am its author, know me to be the non-doer, immutable. This kind of statement is one of the things which makes the caste system survive in India until today. Although the caste system has been booed down by so many wise men and women and Buddha himself declared it obsolete, And the caste system seems to be very ugly and very unfair and very discriminative. It's very politically incorrect with today's democracy norms and so on. Nevertheless, when Mahatma Gandhi says that Bhagavad Gita is the Bible of the Hindus, that's what you read in Bhagavad Gita. And therefore, almost every Orthodox Hindu has read, and it's not the only sentence, it's several times, And therefore here you have Krishna with his own mouth saying the fourfold caste system was created by me according to the division of gunas and actions. And it's true that some modern authors coming 3,000 years later than Krishna, they say the fourfold caste system was created by Krishna and due to the change of the Yugas and of the time and of this, is today not applicable anymore is today to be given up it is obsolete, but that thing is not written in Bhagavad Gita because in Bhagavad Gita Krishna did not anticipate what was going to happen 3000 years later and that's why people just staying to this very old text they get blocked into it and every Hindu, every Orthodox Hindu is taught this ...do not rebel against the caste system. It may be booed and hated by people... ...and disobeyed and people rebel against it... ...and uh, it is not politically correct. But look, our God Krishna says, I created it. So actually, maybe we live in a very dark age... ...where the teachings of Krishna are not liked anymore... ...but the caste system is coming from Krishna... Is coming from God. It is exactly that duality, that thing. That no, there are teachings of God which have become politically incorrect today, but uh, you know, you still the 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 true believers. They still cling to those beliefs secretly, although publicly everybody pretends. Oh yeah, right, sure. But inside, everybody says, yeah, yeah, sure. I can say whatever you want me, you want to hear me say. But the truth is that Krishna says, I created the caste system. And then the people say, who the heck am I to destroy the caste system when Krishna created it? It's a will of God. God wanted the caste system. And he even explains, I created the caste system according to the gunas and karmas. Like, if you are dominated by a certain guna, you are born in a certain caste. By resonance, by call, by invitation. If you are having a certain karma, you are born in a certain caste. The caste of the brahmins, the highest of the four castes, the brahmin caste is characterized by sattva guna. That's why the brahmins dress in white, the color of sattva guna. And you have to be sattvic. Brahmins are not supposed to eat non-sattvic food. They are not supposed to live non-sattvic lifestyles. And this still applies today to the people of great spirituality. People who have become the neo-brahmins, like the spiritual teachers of today, the spiritual guides of today, they have to fulfill that. They still have to be sattvic. Maybe... If some of you here are yoga teachers or will become great spiritual guides, you will be sattvic and you will say, but my family is definitely not a Brahmin family. Sure, because now it doesn't work through birth. It works through natural selection. Those who are born in their hearts to be the Brahmins of this age, they filter themselves, they bubble to the surface, and they emerge as the new Brahmins. No, not everybody. If some of you are doing yoga here and are becoming more and more sattvic, not all of your colleagues from high school are with you today here. How come then from 30 colleagues in your high school only you decided to do spirituality, to be vegetarian, to sublime your sexual energy, to meditate, to become Why? Why only you? So you are a Brahmin at heart There is no more need to be to have been born in the family of a Brahmin. This formalism has decayed already. It's obsolete. But in Bhagavad Gita, this is not written because this is a text which comes from very old days. And they did not predict the fact that it will become obsolete. Therefore, Sattva Guna, white, is for Brahmins. For the second caste, which is the caste of the warriors and of the kings, the arms bearers, the kshatriyas, which in Japan would be called samurai and in the West will be called knights or or aristocracy. These are rajas guna. These are the people who have to bear arms to defend their nation. These are the people who have to be solar, manipuristic. They have to incorporate rajas guna these are the people who will make the judging system the punishing system the military the police the the all the systems which are bearing the armed forces theoretically this should be rajas guna red in color the fourth of the castes is called vaishya And Vaishya are the merchants, manufacturers, merchants, traders of different kinds. And these are a mixture of Rajas with Tamas. And finally, the Shudras, the lowest caste of the Hindu system, these are the farmers, the peasants. And these are dominated by Tamas, Guna. And of course, besides the Gunas there is a karma. Like, of course, if you have the karma to be king, you will become king. Wherever you are born, from whatever family you are born, you are going to be king. The first man who unified Japan after the centuries of war was a peasant. A peasant who became general and who became so successful that he beat all the noble daimyos of Japan And he unified them. He was a peasant. He could not even be made shogun because he was a peasant and not being aristocratic, they didn't call him shogun. But therefore, when you have the karma to become the leader of Japan, you become the leader of Japan. Even if you are born in a peasant family and people don't want to agree to your aristocratic rights, you put them with a nose in the dust. They have to kowtow at your feet because it's your karma. You have a very powerful karma, and whatever you do, you are going to succeed. Thus, Krishna says very clearly, the system of the castes is created by me on account of guna and karma. That means, if you have a certain guna, if you are dominated by sattva, rajas, or tamas, and if you have a certain karma also, the combination of your guna with karma which both of them act on Ajna Chakra. The Gunas come from Ajna Chakra and so does the Karma. The combination of those two make determine in what caste you will be born. Of course, in a country where there are no castes, the collective subconscious mind will not be able to operate any filtering. And then this is not a factor anymore. You will be born where you will be born. But Krishna... In the old days, through the laws of Manu and all that, they were trying, the ancient rishis, to create an orderly social system in which the right soul should be born in the right place, in the right caste, by invitation. So because there was a consecration from the beginning, like there is this caste, there is this caste, there is this caste, there is this caste. And please, O gods, send the right souls in the right boxes. Please don't make us cross by playing games with us. If you play games with us, it means we are stupid and we upset you. We want to make you happy. What we want from you is send the right soul in the right caste. Don't send the soul of a peasant as the son of a brahmin. And don't send the soul of a brahmin as the son of a peasant. Because that's going to upset the social order. Because of course the brahmin will emerge eventually. And that upsets the social order. Of course, in the modern days, it's almost rejected completely. But it is so. For example, the great Maharishi Mahesh Yogi, the father of transcendental meditation, the so-called guru of the Beatles, who was a very, very proeminent spiritualist and very great in many ways, never wanted to return back to India after he obtained proeminence in the 1960s and 70s. He lived the rest of his life in Holland and he never even visited India and he was a billionaire. He was super rich and they were having lots of spiritual projects and others. Why? Because he was born from a low caste and in India nobody paid respect to him. And he said, why should I go and bother with those fools? Because instead of realizing that I'm a person who reached Samadhi, they are going to ask me, oh you come from a peasant's house. Ah, okay. And then they are going to have very high noses compared. Then let them die in their poverty and ignorance. I'm going to teach to the Westerners who don't care about these things. Like Maharishi Mahesh Yogi could not be stopped by the destiny, on the contrary, from becoming a great spirit and a great teacher. He became anyway a great teacher, although he was born from a peasant, because the caste system does not work anymore, truly speaking. But at the time of Krishna, Krishna still believed in it and said the caste system is still there and I made it. So basically Krishna says, I, but when he means I, he doesn't mean he himself. He means I as God inspired Manu and Vishwamitra and others and they conceived this system. He does not mean I literally in a gross way. And he says... This fourfold order was created by me, God, according to the division of the gunas and karma. And then he comes to the point, because that's where he wants to get. He says, although I am its author, like he doesn't need to tell that to Arjuna, because Arjuna knows that Arjuna believes in the caste system, even if it were for the fact that Arjuna is an arrogant kshatriya. He is a warrior, and when you are on top of the game... Of course you want the status quo to be preserved. When you are a peasant, you say, screw the priests and screw the aristocrats. They are the ones who sit on top of the ladder and they enjoy all the benefits. Then maybe you want some anarchy. But when you are a king or a Brahmin, you say, no, 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 things are good as they are. Like, for me, they are good. I am sitting in the most nice place. I have the best seat in the hall here, you know. So it's like, it's good for me. And thus... Arjuna knows about the fact, or he believes, that the caste system is a divine creation. Nobody had doubts about that in those days. But Krishna wants to say something else. He says, although I am its author, know me as to be the non-doer immutable. Like Krishna says, I am God. I created the caste system. I didn't do anything and I am immutable. Like basically he says, I'm detached. I do without doing. Ve vuvay to act without acting, to do without doing. Krishna says, I am God, and I did, but actually I didn't do. Like I am completely detached to all this drama. I did it because it was the right thing to do, and yet I am a non-doer. Like I don't have any karma for this. I don't have any consequence from this. I am immutable. I did not change because I did this. I just did this like a game. Like whatever. You can take it in any way your mind understands it. The truth is that you can't understand it anyway. Why I did it. The question is not why I did it. I did it and I am the non-doer and immutable at the same time. This is what Krishna wants to make the point. He says... He wants to show him karma yoga, how to do things without doing them. He first presented to him a panorama of the world, and he said, however men approach me, so I reflect back to them. People who want success, they make sacrifice to the gods. I created the system of castes, and at the same time, I'm like completely detached from all this. I'm a non-doer. I'm not touched by any karma because of this. And I am immutable. That was the point. Krishna wants to tell him, You, Arjuna, please do the same. Do this business of ours here, which we have to do, which is some ugly business, some ugly job, and be non-doer and immutable. Be like me. The world flows on. God has created the world. In this world, it may have happened yesterday, and surely it must have happened, That a little child somewhere in India or in Africa was eaten by a lion. That's the world made by God. In the world made by God, there was a careless kid roaming freely in the jungle, lost by the parents, and suddenly a predator came and ate it. It's not nice, a little child eaten by a tiger or by a lion or something. It's cruel. The nature of God is cruel, and God says, I couldn't care less. I'm the non-doer, I am immutable, like I'm not touched by all this. This is a game. People say a game in which little children are getting eaten by leos, not to, mention, not to mention zebras and antelopes and other animals eaten by predators, like there are predators in the sea, in the air, on the land. We live in a world of devoration constantly. Animals and human beings are devoured by each other. There is a holocaust, there is a hectacom. there is a constant sacrifice. Every day, tens of millions of lives probably are taken. Animals killed for food by the humans. Animals killed by other animals, by predator animals. Human beings killed by other human beings. Human beings killed by predator animals. Is this a game? You have to have very strong nerves to look upon this as a game, like there is a detachment. And Krishna gives a picture of the world and he says, Nevertheless, although I did all this, I am not attached to it. I am not touched by it. I am not tainted by it. I am non-doer and I am immutable. And he continues, and here is the point, and after this, with we will stop. He says, actions do not involve me, nor have I any longing for the fruit of action. He who truly knows me thus, is not bound by actions. He gives him the secret, because that's the secret. Arjuna is afraid that he will be bound by his actions. He's going to kill Duryodhana, his cousin. And he is going to commit a fratricide, a, you know, a terrible sin. And he says, "How I can do this? Even if I win, I will be lost. I will be despised by everybody. If I lose again, I'm going to be despised because I am a loser." And he is in a total dismay. He is in a total. He's in a, He's about to give up the whole thing. And Krishna constantly tries to motivate him. And therefore, Krishna says, "Look at what a world I created." And he says, Yet I am a non doer. Actions do not involve me. Actions do not involve the divine. People always think that God will intervene. God does not intervene. Actions do not involve me. You want some action? Ask the gods, ask the deities. They are part of this universe and they are ready to act for the right price. You pay the right price, the gods, the demons, the devils, somebody will respond. Of course, if you invoke the demons and the devils, then you do black magic and there is heavy karma coming for that, but still, you can make them work for you, paying the ugly price which they will ask for it. That's why, of course, with the gods, with the deities of light, with the devas, it's at least sattvic, it's at least a luminous thing. So. Krishna says very clearly, actions do not involve me. People would say, "What a hypocrite God!" You know, first he created all this kaboodle, and we are all here in trouble because of this. And now he puts his, you know, he, he just turns around and says, "Goodbye." Actions don't involve me. I am an ondoer, and I couldn't care less about what you guys are doing. That's exactly this divine detachment, which you have to understand. People think that because one person is good, God is going to reward them. Those of you who have reached that far in the curriculum of Agama as to study the law of perfect accomplishment, it's somewhere in the level 10 or something. That's not a beginning teaching. There it is said very clearly. Take out of your mind the ridiculous belief that God will reward you because you are good, because you are a good person. There are lots of good persons who died of cancer and died in poverty and they didn't have anything. Actions are not coming from God. God is not poking his finger in the nature, except in very rare occasions, like when Krishna visits the nature or when Jesus visits this planet. And then God does a few flabbergasting miracles to awaken the hearts of people and then goes back away. Disappears again, like the actions are done by the gunas upon the gunas. As I read earlier, it is not now, in an earlier shloka in chapter 3, Krishna was saying very clearly, the gunas act upon the gunas. Like what has that got to do with me, God, with a witness? I am not a guna. The gunas act upon the gunas. All the actions, like the fact that somebody heals themselves, or the fact that somebody becomes rich, or the fact that, it's gunas acting upon the gunas. It has nothing to do with God. People think God has made you king. God has made you wealthy. No. God is just watching the show. God hasn't made you anything. It's your karma and it's your guna which made you be what you are. It's a game of the gunas and karma. You want to participate in that game? It's not God who does it. It's the devas. It's the gunas. It's the karma that does it. Take care of that. It's a very clear teaching. It's very beautiful because it eliminates this crazy illusion from the minds of people where you see many people finding or hoping absurdly for a divine help which can never come. Of course there is grace. But grace comes when it wants, how it wants. It has nothing to do with people's actions or with the flow of history or other things. So he says, actions do not involve me nor have I any longing for the fruit of action. Exactly what karma yoga is. He who truly knows me thus, important, he doesn't say, he who truly knows me. Because that would change the register. He would say, he who knows me is not touched by actions, does have no karma, gets no karma from his actions. It means everybody who is a god-knower, gets, no, he doesn't say this, he says, he who truly knows me thus, you have to meditate upon God as God not being involved and not having longing for the fruits of action, which means go into the karma yoga mode. Then he who truly knows me thus, he who says, I, just like God, I am not bound by my actions and I am not involved and I have no longing for the fruits of the action then he who truly knows me thus is not bound by any action. This is just another definition of detachment and consecration. This is how you detach and this is how you, are, you consecrate. Realize, meditate on this statement. Actions from the previous shloka already. He says, though I am the author thereof, know me as the non-doer and immutable. And he continues, actions do not involve me, nor have I any longing for the fruit of action. He who meditates and truly knows me thus, is not bound by actions. Because the person who meditates thus, has reached a state of knowledge and of detachment. That's the meaning of it. So, the last one, because it continues with the idea, afterwards he... He starts with a slightly different theme. I would like to finish this one. It's short. In the shloka number 15, which is the last for today, he says, having known this, like now I gave you the teaching. He gave him the teaching. If you are stupid, he tells to Arjuna, think again. I told you the secret already. Having known this, even the ancient seekers of liberation, like the ancient spiritualists, performed action." This is what allowed to the ancient seekers of liberation to still perform action. Because they identified with God, who is immutable, (coughs) non-doer, not involved into action, and doesn't have any longing for the fruits of the action. And then, if you know that, then you can do action, because the action doesn't produce any bondage. It doesn't produce karma anymore. Having known this... Even the ancient seekers of liberation performed action. Therefore, do you perform action as did the ancients in the old days. It's all about Arjuna. Don't forget the whole thing is a clever argument for Arjuna to sit up and move his ass and do the job which is required to do. And Krishna gives him endless arguments till he finally gives in, caves in. And thus... He says, knowing this, this by knowing this teacher, others have performed exactly like this. Therefore, you, and not only Arjuna, you here in this hall tonight, do you perform action as did the ancients in, olden, in older days. Basically, Krishna says, do karma yoga. Do action, but do action thinking of the detachment of God, I then know this divine nature, focus on Sahasrara, identify, consecrate, detach yourself, and do action in a divine way. That is the teaching, and it is inevitable, and it is unmistakable. It is a teaching which is crystal clear, and addresses first to Arjuna, and indirectly to every human being. Let us stop now with these teachings. We will interiorize for two, three minutes just to calm down and to have the mind peacefully absorb the teachings. And after this, we stop for tonight. And with this, we finished for tonight. Namaste to all of you. I'll meet you in the next satsang.